Get Up Nation. I hope you're enjoying the Get Up Nation podcast on www.anchor.fm. As a podcast host on over 20 platforms, I really enjoy how easy it is to use Anchor, how Anchor makes everything I need available in one place for free, accessible on your smartphone or desktop computer. Go to www.anchor.fm now. In case you didn't know, Anchor has creation tools that allow you to record and edit each episode. If you're concerned about the distribution of your hard work, don't sweat it because Anchor takes care of that too. If you're considering becoming a podcaster, I would highly recommend Anchor as your choice to begin sharing your content with the world. Get Up Nation. My name is Ben Biddick. I am the creator and host of the Get Up Nation podcast, where I serve individuals, organizations, and societies to develop and sustain resilience and perseverance. I'm the co-author of Get Up, The Art of Perseverance, where former Major League Baseball player and CEO of Luron Living, Adam Greenberg. Welcome to episode 58. Recently, I had the honor and privilege of speaking with Jordan Thewer. I had the honor of being connected with Jordan by Mark Hawley, who owns Atlas Defense. Mark is an amazing person who stepped up when I wanted to help Renee Parks and her husband Scott celebrate completing chemotherapy. Check out Renee's amazing journey on Get Up Nation podcast episode three and check out Mark Hawley's Atlas Defense at the link below, where he coaches his clients on personal security to develop confidence through competence. He served in the Marine Corps and lives to impact veteran mental health. Which brings me to Jordan. Jordan is the first Get Up Grant winner of 2019. Get Up Nation provided him with $50 to get some gear he needed for a race he only had four days to prepare for. When we get into this episode, you'll understand why I believe Jordan is deserving of our support. He is doing amazing things and overcoming tremendous adversity. He is an ultra runner who just completed the St. Croix Winter Ultra 40-mile race in Hinckley, Minnesota on January 12, 2019. He pulled a sled in the middle of the woods at night for 40 miles on four days notice. Initially, he thought he earned 20th place, but found out afterward he placed 14th by finishing the race in 11 hours, 27 minutes, and 14 seconds. Jordan is a United States Army veteran and a survivor of alcoholism. In the darkest times of his addiction, he discovered the book Born to Run, A Hidden Tribe, Super Athletes, and the Greatest Race the World Has Never Seen by Christopher McDougall. It was the spark Jordan needed to begin his journey towards sobriety and health. Some ridiculed him when he first articulated he was going to be an ultra runner in the throes of addiction. But here he is now making his dream a reality. Jordan, welcome to the Get Up Nation podcast. Thank you. Absolutely. I'm so excited to have you on. Can you share where you're currently located for anybody who wants to reach out to you or partner with you in the future? So I'm a personal trainer out of a gym in Minneapolis, Minnesota called Los Campeones, means the champions in Spanish. And you can find me on Instagram, Jordan underscore Thewer. That's my first and last name. I'm pretty easy to find. Excellent. And I'll have those links here below so that it's easy for people to reach out. Let's get into this. So you did not have an easy childhood. You had tremendous adversity very early. Would you mind going into some of your experiences as you grew up? Yeah. My birth mother, my biological mother, was an alcoholic. So my brother and I would be with her and then in and out of foster home back and forth. 
basically in foster home until I was about seven. I only remember the small details. When we lived at there, she'd be gone for, you know, weeks at a time. I remember things like all we had to eat were Oscar Mayer Wiener hot dogs, and my brother, who was a year older than I, he knew how to turn the oven on, so he would throw the hot dogs in the oven, and they would burn, and we'd survive for a week out of burnt hot dogs. So it took me a long time before I liked hot dogs again after that. Hmm. Then I lived in one particular foster home from probably four to seven, and then I was adopted by my aunt, so my biological mother's sister, who I now call mom, and that was, a, for the most part, a good experience. I don't think she knew what she was getting herself into with crazy kids with everything we had gone through in childhood, but she did her best, and then my birth mother passed away when I was, I want to say, 11 of alcohol, like it finally defeated her, so... Definitely runs in the uh, DNA, which I found out in the future. My brother, who dealt with the brunt of it as a kid, he ended up running away right for my 14th birthday. And on my, like, on my 14th birthday, my only father figure, he passed away. And his funeral was on my 14th birthday, so that really messed me up going into high school. I remember going into high school just a really awkward kid, no friends, had a really hard time getting by, hated life. I mean, I guess nobody truly likes high school, but I know I really hated it. When you're dealing with all those dynamics and the trauma of that, certainly a person has got to have trouble focusing on schoolwork or algebra, things like that, when you're dealing with everything that you endured. Yeah. And so you found some solace or engagement, though, in athletics, am I correct, it was wrestling and working out? Correct. In my sophomore year, somebody mentioned one day, hey, why don't you join the wrestling team? And I said, yeah, absolutely, why not? You know, I'm not really doing anything else. I need some reason to come to school. And I fell in love with fitness then. And I was a kind of a terrible wrestler. I had ADD growing up, so I had a lot of trouble focusing. So I couldn't get the move down quite right. But just the physical fitness aspect of it, I just, it drew me. So I started working out all the time. I would get up in the morning and go to the Y and work out. And then I'd go to class. And then I'd have gym class at the end of the day. And then straight from gym class, go to wrestling practice. Then I'd go home for a couple hours and go back to the Y and work out. And that was kind of like my day. I just loved it. That's when I first started falling in love with running. I would just run just for something to do. And I would run from Minneapolis to St. Paul a lot. Unreal. Yeah. yeah. What sort, was, like, sort of distance is that? Uh, what I was doing was like 10 miles probably. Wow. I don't know. I never calculated it out. I was probably doing more than that, actually. Huh. Um, you know, 10 miles there, and then I knew somebody who lived there, so I'd either get a ride back or I'd run back. I didn't know what, anything about running long-distance races then, but that's kind of my first experience, really, with pushing myself. That was kind of my high school, I, and then eventually I just I hated it so much. I was very awkward, and I, I didn't fit in very well. I had a lot of trouble making friends, and I was always, you know, pretending to be somebody that I wasn't. didn't know who I was, so I was just kind of fake and doing everything I could to get people to like me. So I ended up dropping out of high school, took my GD, and I joined the military as a Cav Scout, and, you know, I wanted to join the cause. We had just invaded Iraq, and I was... 18 years old, so it sounded like a good time to me. So yeah, that's what I did next, 
and that was a pretty, you know, interesting experience. How did you decide on the Army? Did you know all along that it was going to be Army? My grandfather was in World War II in the Army, and he was a scout himself. I see. I see. So I was always kind of drawn to that. And I knew, even my freshman year in high school, I kind of knew I was going to join the Army. Hmm. I knew that was where my life was headed. But uh, I was still kind of deciding on Navy and Army. Like the advertisements for Navy is getting on a ship and traveling the world. Right kind of drew me in. Mm-hmm. And there was an Army recruiter's office and a Navy recruiter's office right next door to each other. And the guy in the Navy office happened to be gone for the day, so it was closed. So I just went next door and joined the Army, and huh. you know, the rest is history. See. So Fort Benning, Georgia, or? Fort Knox. Fort Knox, okay. Yeah. So did uh, OSET training, so basic training, and then AIT kind of combined. Mm-hmm. So there for, what, 16 weeks, I want to say? A long okay. time ago, 2004. And then I went out to Germany, and that's when life got real hard. All the promises of everything getting easier after basic was, you know, a bunch of BS. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But um, that's kind of where I learned to be a man. You know, I, I didn't have many people to show me that growing up. Hmm. So, you know, grow, growing up, I was a very sensitive kid. Also, I was insecure, I was sensitive, and the Army really toughened me up, which is something I needed, and it taught me how life isn't always fair, hmm. if I didn't know that already, I guess. Were there situations or people that were important to you that helped teach lessons like that, or was it just being in the environment? Or uh, Well, definitely the environment. I had one particular platoon sergeant. When I first got there, I absolutely hated him, and he just wanted to make life as miserable as possible for everybody, mm-hmm. and he did a good job of that. <laughs> we were all pretty stressed out and, you know, worn out, but if it hadn't been for him, I'd be a totally different person today, I think. Like, mm. I definitely learned how to push past my limits. Definitely taught me a lot, and going inside Iraq, you know, had it not been for him, I wouldn't have been as prepared going into war. What were some of the missions that you were tasked with? Um, so like a scout's real job is reconnaissance and security. So there wasn't much reconning to do over there. It was just pretty much policing. So we do a lot of patrols, driving around the Humvees. And then I got to a point, the last tap, where I was security detail for the sergeant major. And that was a pretty fun job. So I was his gunner for the second half of it. First half was just kind of looking for IEDs and uh, basically looking for trouble. That was about it. Were there any situations there, any lessons you learned or things that were troubling or growth that happened for you personally experiencing that environment? Um, growth, just learning to get through it one day at a time. You know, learning to be patient because we were there for 15 months. And that's just a long time. Basically, like, I, in my mind, it was like doing prison time one day at a time. But, yeah, I had some tough times. We lost a couple of friends of mine, and that was pretty hard on me. Uh, Definitely didn't like seeing my, you know, brothers get killed, but, you know, it's part of it. That's a long time to be in that environment, 15 months. Every time you drive somewhere, you don't know if the road's going to blow up under you, and you don't know what's going to happen, and, and seeing friends of yours get hurt and losing them. What was it like for you returning home? Pretty surreal. You know, when you're living day-to-day, not every day was bad over there, but you're definitely you're ready for anything to happen. You don't know if it's going to be your last. Uh, then you get home and, you know, nobody knows what it's like. It's, you can't really talk about it to anybody. You don't realize that you're still a little on edge. So that's when you start drinking a lot, just to kind of calm down. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was a tough transition for me. But I started bartending right away. And I don't know if that helped or hurt, honestly. <laughs> it didn't help the alcoholism, but had I gotten a job where I was somewhere by myself, then I'd be stuck alone with my thoughts. So bartending kept me kind of somewhat active hmm. and at least talking to people and social. Right. So it helped in the short term, but uh, in the long term, it didn't help feed my addiction. Did you want to speak on that a little bit? Some of the posts that you've posted and some of why you run, you want to raise awareness about alcoholism, especially in the veteran community. So alcohol is certainly something where you're on edge, where you're hypervigilant, where you can't calm down. Alcohol is that depressant. We can medicate ourselves that way. Is there anything you wanted to talk about with regard to that? Yeah, absolutely. Alcohol is such a big part of the military. You know, that's kind of all we do. Train and then you party. I mean, we were drinking every night and we were just having a, you know, it was a blast while we were young. But, uh, you know, when you when that's all you're doing for fun and then you get out and that's kind of not normal in the civilian world. So for me, and I'm sure there's plenty of other people like me, they bring that from the military world into the civilian world mm-hmm. and they keep drinking and that's kind of all they know how to relax. That's all they know what to do. And kind of right now, my focus is to running is to eventually bring awareness to substance abuse and alcohol abuse. Because nobody talks about that. They talk about suicides, which right. is definitely very important. And right. we should be talking about that. But, I mean, maybe if somebody puts that bottle down, they might not commit suicide. Right. right. You know? Yep. Nobody, nobody talked to me about it. Yeah. Nobody told me how much that drinking would transfer over to the civilian world. And then when you don't have anybody to talk to you about these things, what do you do? You drink. Right. And you, you self-medicate. So as you were in this place, we talked before a little bit about how you went into a pretty dark place within yourself in this period afterward. <laughs> there was, um, yeah. you, you were out of shape. You were, you had some delirium tremens. There was a, you, oh, yeah. you were stabbed. I mean, do you want to share some of those things? And I just, if you don't, that's fine. I just wanted to. No, absolutely. I just wanted to. I, I talk about it a lot, you know, okay. just to, you know, try to bring awareness to these things to other people. Yeah, so I got out and it all, it starts small, drinking a lot. And I was still in relatively good shape. And then it, you know, it kind of escalates. You notice that you, other people say little things about you maybe having a problem. The sense of humor in the military is a little bit different than the civilian world. They don't kind of understand the jokes you make. But people start looking at you a bit differently and just started going to the bars every night, pretty much, seven days a week, getting blackout drunk seven days a week. And got, like, really out of shape, gained about 50 pounds pretty fast. Just kind of going down this dark hole. Everybody was kind of ashamed of me. Nobody wanted to admit it, but they were. And shaking like a leaf, couldn't... Couldn't uh, couldn't drink a beer in the morning because I was shaking so bad. I'd have to drink a cocktail because it'd have a straw in it. So I could just sit by the straw because my hand would shake so much. It'd be like a washing machine. I'd, you know, alcohol fly everywhere if I tried to pick up a glass. Mm-hmm. And it would take me about six shots of whiskey just to start my normal day of drinking just to get rid of the shakes and get going for the day. And that's usually enough to knock somebody out for the evenings, you know? So that was my, that was just the start of my day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, going down that rabbit hole and uh, one night, I remember 
that day getting in an argument with my mother and then going out. Probably just an angry person at that point in time, not happy with myself. And some guys decided to pick a fight with me, and I took the bait. And it was like three guys against two, my friend and I, and I ended up getting stabbed four times in the back. And didn't even realize that I just felt a sharp pain. I thought my ribs were getting broken. So get up to walk away. It's the middle of winter, so I'm wearing a big jacket, so I don't notice I'm bleeding to death. And we get into my buddy's car, and that's when I realized I'm losing a lot of blood. So, you know, he calls 911. And I'm just like, whatever, you know, I'm drunk, I don't care. I'm like, oh, I'll go to bed, I'll go to the hospital in the morning. That was a thought in my mind. He's like, nope, you're going right now. Thank God for him, because I'd be dead if it wasn't for him. So, getting the ambulance, they cut all my clothes off, and then I look and I see the wounds, and I'm like, I am screwed. I'm going to die. There's no way I'm making it out of this one. And I'm telling that to the guys, and I was like, you know, I was in Iraq. I know what it looks like. This is bad. Like, I'm bleeding everywhere. Yeah, this is it. And they bring me into the hospital, and right before they knock me out with the gas, I kind of like, just ask him, give me one more second to look around, because I know once you knock me out, I'm not waking back up. Wow. Yeah, and I made my peace with the world. And the next thing, you know, I remember is waking up in the ICU with a tube in my throat, and my mom right there in front of me crying. And I was like, oh, my God, what is going on? And of course, I'm trying to pull the tube out, but I'm, like, strapped down. It's like... You know, they pull it out, and I just said sorry to my mom, and, you know, I was like, oh, I got to make a change. Mm. You know, this is, you know, this is terrible. And believe it or not, that's not when I quit. <laughs> I quit for, like, two months. Mm. And then the addiction brought me right back in, and it started slowly with maybe a couple beers a week. Uh, and I actually started getting back into running. While doing that, with just a few beers a week, just, you know, I lost some weight after getting stabbed, got in shape, uh, kind of thought I was controlling my alcohol, you know, intake. And that's when I ran my first ever race. I ran a duathlon, which is a run, bike, and a run. Hmm. And loved it. I loved the training for it. And uh, that's when I first read this book about ultra marathon runners. And I told myself, I'm going to do that one day. Tell people at the bar, you know, I'm going to run an ultra marathon. Everybody laughed at me, you know, nobody believed me. And then I started going back down that rabbit hole, started running less, started biking less, started drinking more. And that's when things got real dark. And living in my own filth, my whole, my bedroom was just for sleeping. I was living at home at the time because I couldn't afford rent because all my money was going to alcohol. And, you know, just rotten food everywhere surrounding me. I didn't care. I'd be throwing up every night. So my bed was covered in puke. I'd be puking up blood every morning, mm. shaking again. And I would bike to work. I'd be getting hit by cars because I was so drunk. Like, I should be dead from that, not wearing a helmet. But, uh, you know, somehow managed to survive all that. And one day I just, middle of the night, I decided I need to make a change. This is, this is ridiculous. You know, I'm killing myself. I can only puke up blood so much. And uh, I was living with my mother and one of my aunts at the time. 
my mom was away for work when my aunt was home, and I, you know, knocked on her door in the middle of the night, and I said, you know, my aunt's name is Jane. I said, Jane, I need to quit drinking right now. And she's like, you know, whatever, go to bed. Because <laughs> I woke her up at 2 a.m. I was like, no, this has to happen now. If I don't, if I don't start now, if I go to bed, I'm going to wake up and change my mind. So we got to get this ball rolling. We spent the rest of the night trying to figure out what to do, and I was bartending at the time. I called into my work and said I was going to be gone for a while. And then I wanted to go into rehab, but I was trying to work to the VA. It was kind of a long process. I told them it would take a couple weeks. I was like, you know, I need to go now. Like, I don't have two weeks. But it wasn't an option, so I just decided to uh, shut myself away and quit on my own, my own willpower. But I was ready, you know. I was fed up. I was done. I was sick of being a fat slob. Cleaned my room, cleaned all the junk and trash and rotten food. And I've I've lived in a clean environment ever since. It's amazing what being sober will do. And then I started getting into bodybuilding. After being sober for about two weeks, I started going to the gym. And I switched one addiction out for another. I see. I started lifting weights every day, sometimes twice a day. That was my life. Decided to become a personal trainer. I decided I did this for myself. I want to do this for other people. I got into really good shape. And I did that. So I've been doing that for four years now until... Last summer, I ran a 5K to support my wife. And doing that, it sparked this passion that I had lost, this passion that I had back in high school, that I had the first time I quit drinking, running. When I was weightlifting, I had something I always felt like it was missing. And when I started running, it sparked back up. So then I kind of got obsessed, as a lot of people call it. I started running every day. So that 5K turned into 10 miles. I told my wife, I'm going to run 10 miles today. And she's like, what? Are you sure you can? I was like, you know, I don't know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try. Why not? I'm going to give it a shot. <laughs> and uh, I did it. And after running 10 miles, I laid down, got up an hour later, and went to the gym, got on the treadmill, and ran another three miles. And that was my life. So I went from a 5K, and then I decided, you know what, I'm going to run the Twin Cities Marathon. It's two months away. Wow. And sat down with a friend who was a coach. I said, do you think I could do it? And he's like, well, I mean, you ran 15 miles the other day. I think you'd be fine. <laughs> and then I learned about this ultra marathon that was two weeks later. And I said, what about this one? Do you think I can do that one? And he didn't want to say yes, but he didn't want to say no. <laughs> So he said, well, it's going to hurt. I was like, all right, bring it on. And I trained my butt off. You know, I started running 10 miles every other day and threw some speed work in there. After reading that book again, I read it again like two times during training, and I you know, fell in love. Is it because it's that monumental challenge that it engages you to the point where it draws from you that interest and that passion because it's so hard or is it the connection with being alongside other athletes of this caliber that lets you lock into your greatness it seems like through your entire life there's only been a few people who have really accessed your greatness or communicated to you 
your value? Is it by being around these high caliber people where you're able to access those brilliant parts within yourself to accomplish amazing feats? What is it about this process that really engages you, that draws out this passion in you? You know, it's kind of all the above. Running an ultra marathon, it's more mental than it is physical. It's a battle with yourself. It's a battle with your mind. After you get to a certain point, everything hurts. Right. And it's excruciating. And your mind is telling you to shut it off, to stop. And you got to fight that. And knowing that you can push yourself further than you think you can, and we all can, but usually we just listen to our brain and we shut it off. Hmm. So we stop. So now you gotta, you got to be able to control your mind and push past that pain. Hmm. And that's something that well, you don't perfect, really, because it happens at every race. Like, it's going to happen at the next one, and I'm going to have to push past it, and it's going to be tough. Who's going to say that I'm going to be able to do it the next time, but I'm going to do everything I can. It's a battle with yourself. You're not racing everybody else. You're racing yourself in your own mind. And it's definitely knowing that there's other people out there cheering you on. It's a really awesome community. Everybody's so welcoming, and there's so few of us. There's more than people think, but I think my wife told me it's like 0.02% of the world that are ultra runners. It's kind of cool to think about. It's fun to say that you're with that, part of that select few. What's it like as you start one of these races, when you take that first step, what's, oh, ha what, what's happening with you at that first step? A lot of anxiety. My wife is a saint, honestly, because the few days leading up to a race, I am not fun to be around. <laughs> I mean, I'm really high strung. I'm stressed out. My nerves are going through the roof. That's where the mental battle really starts. Your mind is going to tell your body whether you can do it. Hmm. And it's going to start telling your body before the race even starts. Hmm. So you got to control that even before you've even gotten to the race. So then, you know, leading up to it, it's just it's a different kind of battle in my head. And I get out there, and it's like, it's usually, like, the last one was in the winter, so it's cold, and you're just... You're sitting there waiting because you're not wearing too much gear because you don't want to be overheating while you're mm -hmm. running. So at this point, I'm freezing. And once it starts, though, you start going and it all clicks. It's like, okay, here we go. The first few steps are weird. It's like, all right, he's kind of even trying to remember what to do and remember how to run. And uh, I don't know, it usually takes me about a mile or two to catch my stride and even fall into a rhythm. So the first mile is kind of wishy-washy, but then it all kind of falls into place. As you talk about this, I'm revisiting all those feelings of preparing to go out on a mission where you're checking all your gear. Maybe it's different for you, but for me, it was like that intensive focus on do I have everything I need? Is everything in the place when I need to access it in a hurry? Is it where I need it to be? Do I have all the things? Pre-combat checks, you know, is the vehicle set up? And then you get out on the road and you can have your plan, but you know, obviously reality doesn't go according to plan frequently. And, uh, yeah, you know, is it, is I never it, thought about that. Is it, is it kind of a similar process? Because just looking at some of your posts as you were getting your gear ready for the race where you only had four days notice, you had the sled, your organized calories you need to take in during the race. You know, fluid balance, for me, it just reminded me of that emotional roller coaster that I went through of super highly tuned anxiety. I'm running every scenario through my head. I, I'll get my plan. I know I got to be dynamic because reality will be different, but I'm going to be ready for anything. Is it a similar process for you? Yeah, I guess so. 
I mean, I never really thought about that. There's definitely huge similarities to the two, you know, even with the nerves and anxiety. But you're, you know, you're constantly, just like on a mission, you're, you're, you're constantly, you're going through everything you know, like, what am I going to do here? Yeah. What's the route I'm going to take? Yeah. It's the same with running. It's like, okay, well, I know there's a hill over here. This area is going to be particularly wet or this area is going to be hilly. It might be a little more humid in this spot, you know, so you got to be ready for everything. And definitely the gear, having everything in the right spot. You know, you want to be able to reach for, yep. you know, nutrition. Or you got your camelback, running with a camelback. I also have a couple water bottles. Oh, you're running at night. You got your batteries for your headlamp. You got to be able to switch those out in the dark. So you got to be ready for that. Hmm. I mean, all sorts of things. At a certain point, you'll hit a wall where it's just agony everywhere. In the battle within yourself of surviving that and pushing through, what is it like that final step as you come across that finish line? Oh, it's an incredible feeling. My first ultramarathon, I was really beat up. I was wearing the wrong shoes that weren't broken in properly, so my feet were just in excruciating pain. And, you know, not once did I tell myself I was going to stop. I knew I was going to keep going. I just knew it was going to suck. <laughs> it's like, I know, I know the next few hours are going to be pain, and uh, you know, that's, just, that's just how it is. You know, it's going to hurt. Yeah. But it will end eventually, you know. And either tomorrow I'm going to be really happy or really upset with myself. I want to be really happy tomorrow. So, yeah, so then getting to that finish line, this is all, this is the trail ultra marathon. So it's in the woods. And there was a bend that I had to go around before I hit the finish line. So I stopped short of that bend. I just processed everything, everything I had gone through. You know, all these emotions, all these. This whole lifetime's worth of emotions kind of rolls up in me. Because hmm. I use all that as fuel. I use my whole life's experience right. as fuel. You know, being insecure, getting made fun of, people looking at me differently. Mm-hmm. All that I just, I use. So all these emotions stirred up. It's like I finally did this. I said I was going to do it years ago as a, at a bar as an alcoholic. And here I am. And then I, I crossed the line. It was dark out already. It's been all day long. It's not this glamorous spectacle crossing a, a marathon finish line where there's thousands of people. There was probably like 20 people there. <laughs> but it was it was such an amazing experience. And that was my first one. And then the one with the sled was pretty incredible. There were a few people with that. That one, I finished at 5.30 in the morning. That was an overnight race. So again, not very many people, but they're making as much noise as they possibly can. Hmm. And that's probably, I think I'm most proud of that one so far. Like I said, I had four days' notice. I signed up for it in October. There was a wait list, and it was so far down the wait list. And I even, I contacted the race director, and I said, you know, what are the chances of me getting in this thing? And he said, slim to none. I, I don't want to say you're not going to get into it, but there's not a good chance. Hmm. So I'm like, ah, well, all right, whatever. I'm not going to train for it. My feet are beat up from the last 50-miler. I'm just going to relax, enjoy it. Christmas, you know, enjoy the holidays, mm-hmm. and I kind of forgot about it, and then four days prior, I get an email, congratulations, you've, uh, <laughs> you've, uh, you've gotten into the St. Croix Ultra, and I'm like, what? what? <laughs> My wife is in the bathroom, you know, so I went in there, I was like, hey, so uh, what do you think of me running this race this weekend, you know? We're going to have to go stay at a hotel. And, and so she needed a minute to process that. 
And uh, again, she's a saint. So then all, all my anxiety starts rushing up. Right. Because I haven't trained for this thing. I'm like, I can't do this. I'm pulling a head in the middle of the snow. Like, <laughs> I haven't trained in two months. Like, this is stupid. Like, what am I thinking? <laughs> so, sir, I contact a friend of mine. Her name's Joe Barda. She actually helped pace me for the 50-miler. And I was like, what do you think? And then my old coach contacted him, the guy who helped coach me for the 50. And he was like, ah, yeah, you should be fine. You know, so I'm like, okay, I guess if I could be, if I should be fine, that's okay, whatever. Um, here we go. I guess I'm going to do it. And yeah, so then we started planning and then again, my anxiety skyrocketed. You know, it's this constant battle. Like you haven't trained. Right. This is stupid. What are you thinking? You don't even have the gear for it, but I can't say no. I have to do this. I know I'm going to regret it if I don't. Hmm. Right. And I don't like regretting things. Right. Yeah, so then, uh, you know, we go stay at this hotel in, up north in Hinkley, Minnesota. And go out there. The race started at 6 p.m. We got out there at about 3. And uh, had all this gear, about 60, 70 pounds worth of gear on a sled. Wow. You saw the pictures. It's yeah. pretty ridiculous. Strapped to my waist. And it's all survival gear, and it's a, it's a self-supported race. So you have to you have to carry your own water, your own food. So at most ultra marathons, there's a aid station every five or so miles, hmm. and they give you food and they give you water. You know, it's it's all supported for you. So this one, you bring your own, wow. and you and you have to start and end with a certain amount of calories which means you got to have those calories and then extra calories that you're actually going to eat during the race. So, no training with this sled. And the race starts, and I'm like, all right, well, this is my first time pulling a sled. Is the first two steps of this race. So now i got to kind of acclimate myself to doing that. And it was all, it was a huge learning experience, but probably one of the most amazing experiences of my entire life was running in the middle of the woods at night. With a sled strap to my back, <laughs> with a little little headlamp for light. That's probably the most competitive I've ever been in a race. Like every time I wanted to stop, I'd see somebody in front of me. We all had little red flashing lights on, so you could see where people were. Mm. So when I saw that flashing light, I was like, "All right, I'm gonna beat this guy." I'd start running, and I get past him. Well, now I've gotten past him. Well, now I need to go far enough to where I don't see his blinking light anymore, because mm. I don't want him catching up with me. And then I'll rest a little bit. Then I'll speed walk. So I run my butt off. Next thing I know, he's gone. But then there's another one in front of me. Oh my gosh. Okay. All right, well, I'm going to run up to this guy. And uh, then I hit a point where I was just about at the halfway point. And this was the most crushing defeat I've ever had in a race, where there was two miles of just slick ice. Ooh. And I wasn't prepared for this. I didn't have spikes on my shoes. Never ran or walked, really walked in ice like this. It was really slick. For two miles, I was, it was just slow going, like a turtle's pace. Oh. And all these people I passed, passed me back up. Oh. And it was just demoralizing. Right. Like, oh, like that was it. I was like, I'm done. This is stupid. What am I doing out here? And then I get past that. I'm exhausted. I haven't hydrated properly because... Every time I should be stopping to drink fluids, I'd see someone and I'd try to pass them. So mm -hmm. I wasn't really racing smart at this point. Mm -hmm. 
But then I get to this checkpoint, the only one in the race. I scarfed down a whole can of Pringles that I had with me and uh, eat some cookies and some twins. It's all junk food because hmm. you need all these calories. You need empty calories, so you're just eating junk food. And I chug a bunch of water, and all of a sudden I just felt great, and I was ready to go. And I got back out there, and I pushed myself for 20 miles. Wow. And I just ran hard and didn't see another soul. Nobody passed me. I just pushed it to the end. And that was a good feeling, knowing that I hit a wall and I was ready to be done, but didn't listen to it, and you just you drive on. Right. Amazing. I thought that was so awesome how you said at the end of these runs, there isn't 10,000 people standing there cheering. There's like 20. Yeah. And that, to me, I love that because it's just like the people who know and understand what you've done they have probably understand that pain that you've pushed through and what you've accomplished. And, you know, 10,000 people, they may not know the depth of what you've just done. And, and it's like, it's like the difference between having a true connection with a few sacred people versus just having like a superficial, oh, you know, good job or something like that. I certainly am not an ultra runner, but to be in the ranks of those who understand what's happening and to have their respect, isn't that better? Yeah, no, I totally, I, I agree with that. You know, people that actually know what it feels like, it's fun to have them cheer you on for sure, because they know what you've been through. So there are bigger ultra marathons, like some really prestigious ones, where there are huge crowds at the end, which I'm hoping to get into in the next couple of years. So hopefully I'll have the best of both worlds, be able to finish and have a giant crowd cheer me on yeah tell me about these future races that you're training for well i have one in eight weeks called the zumbro 50 again i don't feel like i'm quite ready i have a lot of work to do in eight weeks i'm doing two a day three a day workouts i'll probably run two more times today and i still gotta lift weights so that's in eight weeks and then i have a marathon in north minnesota called the grandma's marathon i'll push myself really hard in marathons because you're trying to beat a certain time. I guess it's hard to explain. Ultras, you're obviously pushing yourself but for longer. But for a marathon, you're really you're pushing yourself for a shorter period of time. And, and for an ultra, I'm, just, I'm trying to finish. For, for a marathon, I'm trying to beat my last time. I see. If that makes sense. Yep. So I'll do that. And then a few weeks later, I'll do the Toughest Mudder, which is the Tough Mudder course for 12 hours. So I'll be running that for 12 hours. And two weeks after that, I have the Voyager 50, which is a 50-mile race, again, in North Minnesota, one of the most beautiful courses. It's all in the uh, Lake Superior hiking trail. So I'm really excited for that one. And then another marathon, the Twin Cities Marathon. And then I'll be doing my first 100-mile race in October. And I'm really excited. And after that is, you know... Lots of plans. There's a lot of races out there. I'm going to start trying to race in other countries all over the United States. I'd like to run a race in every state. And, you know, do it more frequently. Probably do more than three or four a year. I'd like to do a couple a month, really. Because I'm a bit crazy like that. So it's another addiction. Yeah, there's a lot of big ones out there. So I, I put, in, put myself in the lottery for a race that I learned about in that book, Born to Run. It's called the Lendo 100. And unfortunately, I didn't get into it this year, but hopefully next year. 
and that's all in Colorado at 10,000 feet. Wow. So I'd love to do that. During these processes, do you have moments, as you look back, you're reflective on your life, and you take fuel from your experiences. Are there times where you have a sense of joy and a sense of peace during these processes? Joy, yes, peace. I don't think I've ever had a sense of peace, to be honest yeah. with you. Yeah. Because I'm, uh, I'm always moving, pushing towards something. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know if I'll ever have that. Because I'm never really slowing down. Mm-hmm. Like, there's always something on my radar. But joy, for sure. I'm pretty happy with who I've become. All these crazy experiences growing up, had that not happened, I wouldn't be here doing ultra marathon. I don't really regret anything that's happened. I'm sure I've skimmed over a few things or missed a few things. Because there's definitely, my story's even bigger than that, but it's hard to, like, remember everything when you're trying to tell it. But, yeah, all these things that happened to me made me who I am. And, you know, I, I said I used to be this insecure kid. Now I, I could care less what people think about me, really. I don't think I'm cocky, but I'm definitely confident. And ultra running has really helped with that. Even before ultra running, after I quit drinking, I was still worried about what people thought about me, especially trying to find out who I was. Because I had been this alcoholic for nine years. I didn't know who I was anymore. But then you start running ultra marathons. It's like, God, uh, I'm too busy to care what people think about me. <laughs> I got to go train, you know. Like, I'm, there's too much going on to worry about trivia things like that. And if they don't, if they don't appreciate me, then the hell with them. I don't know what else I have to do. Is there anything else you'd like to share? Whether it's words of encouragement for those who are. In addiction, I know when we spoke before on the phone, there was a point where you got to the point where you were considering suicide and refused that as an option because you didn't want to do that to your adopted mom. Um, is there yeah, definitely. Anything, yeah. anything that you want to say at this point or anything further that you'd like to share? Well, I guess, you know, if anyone is dealing with that, there are other options. And first, got to admit it to yourself. You have to admit to yourself that you do have a problem. And that's the first course of action. But there's so much more to do. There's so much out there. If you are contemplating taking your life, just think of your family and what you're going to do to them. You know, I don't know. It just seems almost, to me personally, it's like selfish. How could I put my family through that? And, you know, there's just so much joy out there in life. You know, if you're going through a rough time, there's somebody out there to help you. And this is a big world. There's plenty of things to do out there. You're going to find something you love. Just take some looking. So I always end the show with six questions to help my listeners understand the why within my phenomenal guests. Do you mind running through these six questions with me? All right. Who are you thankful for today? Definitely my wife. She's a trooper, as I said, you know, putting up with my nonsense. I'm not easy to be around sometimes. So for sure my wife and, you know, my adopted mother and family and all my friends and everyone who supported me. And then my aunt, the one who helped me that first night. I quit drinking, for sure, my Aunt Jane. Hmm. Uh, I'm thankful for all of them. They're, they've always had my back and always will, you know. They support me through everything. And now that we've covered who you're thankful for, what are you thankful for today? Definitely the ability to run these races. Hmm. I'm thankful for that because there's many people that don't have that option. I had some friends over there in Iraq who lost their legs, and, you know, they don't have this option. You know, there's people that can't do it. There's people that are born with disabilities who can't do what I'm doing. Definitely thankful for the ability to run. 
And how do you fuel the fire within you? <laughs> That's tough. That's a tough question because every day is different. I definitely use all my past experiences, my insecurities. Every step is fighting my own insecure self. Some days I'm fueling it with my goals. I'm goal oriented. You know, I have a goal of completing this race or completing this race at this time. Some days it's just using my my past, like I said. Some days I just need to go on YouTube and look up a motivational video. Every day is kind of different. And what is one thing adversity taught you to value? Strength, for sure, physical and mental. The ability to get stronger, definitely to adapt and overcome things. What are you doing today? You never thought you could. Well, pretty much what we've been talking about: running ultra marathons. <laughs> uh, and also coaching and training people. Being this insecure kid, who would have ever thought that I'd be one on one training somebody and they're looking at me, listening to everything I say? And it's like, you better know what you're talking about. You know, you got to be confident and secure with yourself. So, being able to coach people, for sure, especially when they're looking at me for answers. And what will you do tomorrow that you never thought you could? One thing I never thought I'd be doing. And my future goal is to open up a nonprofit to bring awareness and help veterans with alcohol and substance abuse issues, either give them counseling or physical fitness to overcome these obstacles. And then also, I've got some more races that I never would have thought I'd be doing, but there's some 200 race, mile races I want to do. I'm currently working on a 500 mile race, which would be pretty amazing. And then they call it the uh, Super Bowl Ultra Marathon, it's called the Mont Blanc. A race in Europe starts in France and circumnavigates the Alps, goes through Switzerland and Italy and back to France. So that's on my list. And also, I don't know if you've heard about this guy. Uh, it's Colin O'Grady. He just was the first man to cross one end to the other of Antarctica unassisted all by himself. I did hear about this. I yeah. did see that. So yeah. now I have my sights on something like that, too. I'm a bit nuts, so. <laughs> I haven't told my wife yet, but she's probably going to find out in a few minutes. So yeah, I had fun with that. But, uh, that's something that would be pretty amazing. I don't know if it'll happen, but it's something that's on my radar now. How can people learn more about you, follow you, or support you? Right now, just Instagram, and uh, I'll be posting stuff about this nonprofit, hopefully in the not too distant future. But uh, just my name, Jordan Thur, with an underscore in the middle. That's mostly right stuff, so. Awesome. You got you to gotta be interested in that as well. But yeah, I'm pretty easy to reach. I'm pretty available. And I'm always willing to answer questions or help somebody out who's going through a tough time. So. Jordan, thanks again for taking time. It's been an honor. Thank you. Get up, nation. What is engaging you today? What passion of yours has drawn you out of personal darkness and self-destruction? What are you locking into that brings you joy? What if we celebrated these monumental moments in each other's lives more often? What if we got beyond ourselves a little more often and were waiting there at finish lines in the dark as others achieve their lifelong dreams 
after enduring decades of pain and neglect. I think of how Scott Parks was waiting there this week for his wife Renee as she came out of brain surgery. After standing by her for years, as she accomplished amazing feats while battling cancer and continues to fight on. She was guest three on this podcast and continues to embody everything Get Up Nation stands for, with Scott fighting at her side. Who in your life is desiring to surprise you? Who are you tempted to ridicule or dismiss? Who inspires such allegiance in you that you leap into the trenches, saying no matter how long it takes, no matter how much it hurts, I'm here and will be here. This is Get Up Nation. This is gritty, painful, beautiful progress. These are the hungry lessons that satiate to fullness. These are the noble, the brave, powerful men, the powerful women who fight through agony to find glory. This is Jordan running through the night until the very last steps across the finish line. Lungs burning, muscles aching, a hundred thousand agonizing nights at his back and a smile bright as dawn, beaming as the sunrise splits the darkness, making it all worth it believing there was better 